This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Come to class. You are dismissed. Let's pray before we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come to your Word now not to cease in our worship, but to continue. We look to your Word for truth, truth about you, truth about our Savior, truth about your Spirit. We look to your word for the, for the glory and the honor and the praise that are due you for the work that you have accomplished in our lives. Father, we also look to your word for instructions on how we ought now live in light of what you have done for us. So Father, I, I pray that you would do that now. Open the eyes of our our hearts unstop our ears that we might see your grace and love once again and in return uh, have, a, have a larger desire to, to work out that salvation in our lives. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. We're going to be back in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning if you want to head there in your Bibles. I read an interesting thing this week about a tribe in the Amazon called the Piraha tribe. Very interesting little article. Because the Piraha tribe, like many Amazonian tribes, has a very limited view of existence outside of the present. That doesn't mean they don't have any concept of, of time. But because they are so focused on the present, they don't feel the need to be very detailed about the past or the future like we do. One of the more interesting ways this can be seen is in their language. You see, in their language, everything in the past is simply referred to as yesterday. And everything in the future is simply referred to as tomorrow. So, if we were to think like the Piraha, in our culture, the fall of Rome, U.S. Revolution, Civil War, World War II, and Saturday, all happened yesterday. And conversely, Your upcoming birthday, Christmas, summer vacation, and Monday will all happen tomorrow if we were to think like them. So apparently you got a lot of shopping to do. (laughs) Here's what I think is especially interesting, though, about how they think. I think it's interesting that the Bible calls us Christians to think kind of like the Piraha. In the sense that the Bible calls us Christians 
to think that tomorrow is always the last day. The end is always tomorrow in the Christian life. The answer to the question, when is the end? Tomorrow is the, is the answer the Christian will always give. If we have that perspective, though, if we have that perspective that the end is always tomorrow, then it's important that we remember what the end is. Because ultimately, if the end is tomorrow, then that should drive our lives today. And the Bible tells us that two things are going to happen in the end. First, and probably most obviously, if you spent any amount of time in churches, Jesus is coming back. If tomorrow's the end, then Jesus is coming back. And according to Scripture, only one thing needs to happen for His return. Only one thing. I want you to listen to this. Meaning, according to Scripture, everything that needs to happen for Christ to return either has happened or is happening. Except for one thing. I told you 1 Peter 4, but flip to 2 Peter chapter 3 for a moment. Because Scripture tells us there is this special book in heaven called the Book of Life. It's a book that contains the names of every person who is saved. But Scripture tells us that every name in that book was written before the foundations of the world. So what's the one thing that has to happen before Jesus comes back? Well, Scripture would tell us a better question is who's the last person? Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Meaning the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and heavenly bodies and fire and burning and chaos. In other words, Peter's telling us that as soon as that last name in the book of life believes, bang, Jesus comes back. It's going to be immediate. There's not going to be a chance for a real quick change. Just boom, the rider on the white horse, ready to judge the living and the dead. And according to the Christian, the way our mindset is, is that's tomorrow. The first thing Scripture tells us about the end is that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, as far as we're concerned. But until that last person is saved, the second thing Scripture says is going to happen in the end is the persecution and suffering of God's people. I don't have time to list all the Scriptures that say that. Let's just say there's a lot. Most of the book of Revelation, a lot of what Jesus said. What does that have to do with 1 Peter chapter 4? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want you to look at verse 7 where we will begin this morning. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Not will be. Is. Present tense. Right now, today, the end of all things is at hand. So how would you live today if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? 
Because that's what I want to convince you of this morning. I want to convince you this morning. Not only the end is at hand. But how we should live if that's the case. If the end is at hand, what should be important to us? If the end is at hand, what should we be spending our time doing? If the end is at hand, then how should we live? And that's what Peter's going to tell us this morning. And basically, he's going to tell us if the end is at hand, there are two things that we should be doing. Look again at verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. Meaning, because the, thing, the end of things is at hand, he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So first, Peter says, if the end is at hand, then be alert for the sake of your prayers. Be alert for the sake of your prayers. So how is your prayer life? Because Peter isn't just giving us a random checklist. He didn't just sit back in his chair and think, okay, the end, I don't know, let's go with prayer. That's not what he's doing here. He learned this the hard way. Remember the night before Jesus was crucified? He took the disciples with him into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he left most of the disciples at the gate, but he took Peter, James, and John into the garden with him. And he told them, here, stay here and pray with me. He said, for my soul is very troubled. And then Jesus went into the garden a little further and he prayed that prayer that we know caused him to sweat blood. But then when he came back out, what did he find? Peter, James, and John were asleep. And he woke them up and he says, can't you stay awake for one hour? Please, I beg you, stay alert. Pray with me. My heart is very troubled. The point is, what happened to Peter a couple of hours later? A couple of hours later, Peter found himself in the courtyard of the high priest, unprepared for the trial he was about to face, and he denied Christ three times. Peter was not aware that he was in a war. He was not alert to what was going to be happening. In fact, just to confirm this is what Peter is talking about, look down at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, do not be surprised by the fiery trial like I was. You know, something interesting happens at the boot camps of every branch of the U.S. military during war. Some researchers went all the way back to World War II and looked at all the test scores of the classes during all the major U.S. conflicts from then until now. You know what they found? They found that test scores in boot camp skyrocket during times of war. Why is that? Well, obviously, because the soldiers that are in the boot camp know that what they're being taught is very important. They know their life is going to be on the line very soon. And Peter is saying something similar to us. He's saying, don't follow in my footsteps and be caught sleeping. Don't be caught distracted. Don't be caught unprepared. 
Peter was in a, a three-year boot camp of sorts, and he wasn't aware that he was going to war, and he got caught unprepared. And such is the case with many Christians. We are unprepared for trials because we're not even aware we're in a war. We're not alert to what God said was going to happen in the last days. We're not prepared ultimately by prayer. He says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So if the end is at hand, what do your prayers look like? Today is your last day. What does God want you to do? Today is your very last day. What do you need God's strength to accomplish? Tomorrow, a, a severe trial is coming. Are you prepared to endure? Tomorrow, a trial is coming. You will be tested. What do you need to pray for today? Can you, can you see how our perspective of tomorrow drives our prayers today? Our perspective of tomorrow shapes and directs our prayer life today. In other words, if the end is at hand, the first thing Peter says we should be is simply aware and alert for the sake of our prayers. Because if we are self-controlled and, and sober-minded, clear-headed, he means not distracted, then we will not only be praying, but our prayers will be shaped by that mindset. And if our prayers are shaped by that mindset, what I think would happen is this. We would be in fervent prayer for God's will for our lives. We would be in fervent prayer for God's strength in our lives. If we had one day left, we would be in fervent prayer for God's grace in our lives. If tomorrow was the end, we would be in fervent prayer for God's glory in our lives. And I would say this, most importantly, if, if we shaped our prayers by tomorrow is the end, our prayers would include a lot more listening and a lot less talking. If the end is at hand, the first thing Peter says is we must simply be alert to that truth for the sake of our prayers. But the second is even more important. Look at what Peter says next, beginning in verse 8. He says, above all, more importantly, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now here's one of the things that I think is so cool about Scripture. If you knew that today was your last day, if you knew that tomorrow a severe trial was going to come into your life, would earnestly loving others be the first thing that came to your mind to do? Maybe it is, and good on you if it is, because it wouldn't be my first thought. I'll be honest. Which is why we need the Word of God so badly. We don't think the way God thinks, do we? We want to, but, but so often we don't. Peter says, if the end is at hand, then love each other earnestly. But look at why Peter says we should love each other earnestly. Because that's even stranger. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. What in the world does that mean? 
It doesn't mean that if we love each other, we're going to somehow atone for their sin. Jesus did that. I would say picture someone on fire. One of the best things you can do for them is wrap them in a blanket or something and smother that fire. Take all the oxygen away from that fire. However, what often happens when that takes place is the person wrapping them gets burned. They get singed. And I think Peter is saying something similar here. He says, he's saying something like love takes the oxygen out of sin. Look at what he says again in verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly if they love you. No, that's not what he says. Right? And that's the point. Love one another earnestly. Stop. Even if they don't love you. Even if you get burned. And snuff out that fire. Take the oxygen out of it with love. In other words, if the end is at hand, one of the most important things we need to do is earnestly love each other like our Savior loved us. We need to earnestly love each other like our Savior loved us. And praise God, we don't have to guess what that looks like. Peter gives us two ways that we can love one another earnestly. Look at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, I've said this before, but Peter says it really clear in this passage. The modern church has a warped view of what hospitality really is. We get this, this inkling to you know, to, to show hospitality, and so we say, hey, you guys want to come over for dinner in a few weeks? Great, you put the time and date together, and here's what that means. It fits neatly into my schedule. I have a time to get the house ready. I, have, I can figure out what that thing is that died in my teenager's room. <laughs> we can do it just the way we need to. But that's not biblical hospitality. It's not wrong. It's just the Bible calls that fellowship, not hospitality. The word hospitality in Greek is philo-xenos. Philo, brotherly love. Xenos, alien, stranger, foreigner. So according to the Bible, hospitality is really the love of strangers. Not strange love. Stranger love. And we can see this clearly if we know what this looked like for, for, for the first people that Peter wrote to. You see, back then, not only was there not a Marriott or a Motel 6 on every corner, but Christians were struggling terribly everywhere. So, so if you were traveling, you had to rely on the hospitality of strangers for a place to stay. However, what was probably more often the case were Christians who found themselves homeless because of the persecution. In other words, Peter is saying to his first readers, that they should be ready to open their homes and their lives, not only to people they don't know, but to people whom it might be a burden to do so. They might be burdened by who they open their lives and their homes to. Look how Peter qualifies the hospitality the way he does at the end of verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, he's saying to love each other earnestly with this kind of hospitality it means grumbling might be our first reflex. It's letting that guy who clogs up the shower with his back hair live in your house for a while. It's, it's, it's letting that family who has wild, out-of-control kids live in your house for a while. 
break things. Ladies, listen. It means opening up your house when your house ain't perfect. It means letting people come over when it's dirty. It means having people over for beans and rice because you haven't been to the store yet. It means opening up your lives, now get this, to people you may not like. So what I'm saying is, is the next time you're over at somebody's house, you should ask them. Do you actually like me or are you just showing me biblical hospitality? <laughs> I'm just kidding. What Peter is saying is this. If the end is at hand, then we should love each other by letting them into our lives like our Savior let us into his. In other words, listen, however difficult it may be for you to let someone into your life, it wasn't as difficult as it was for Jesus to open up his home to us. As much of an inconvenience as someone may be to us, they're never more an inconvenience than we were to Jesus. I say this a lot. It's a good thing Jesus didn't treat us like we treat each other. As unsophisticated or ungrateful as you may think a guest may be, they are not nearly unworthy of our attention as we were of Christ's. In simple terms, Peter is saying, love one another earnestly by letting them into your lives like Christ let us into His, even at great cost. First, love one another earnestly by letting them into your lives. But look at what he says second. The other way we should love one another in verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So, so first, if the end is at hand, we are to love one another earnestly by, by showing hospitality. And second, we are to love one another earnestly by using our spiritual gifts. Now, it doesn't matter if you know what those are or not. It doesn't matter if it scares you or excites you. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for 10 days or 10 years. It doesn't matter if you're 5 or 50. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, you have been endowed by Him with a special gift to serve His body. Now, Peter doesn't give an exhaustive list of those gifts. Notice how he just breaks them up into two basic categories. Look at verse 11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So, so according to Peter, all spiritual gifts can be broken up into speaking and serving. It's really that simple. That word speaking there. It literally means speaking. It means opening up your mouth so words can come out. And there, there, there are some of you in this room who have been endowed by your Savior with the ability to counsel, to encourage, to teach, to rebuke, to preach, even to evangelize, or any number of other speaking gifts. 
You've been gifted to open your mouth and bless the body of Christ with the words that come out. And on the other hand, some of you have been specially gifted to serve. You might like to be in the background. You've been gifted to plan and deliver and drive and pray and give and shop and clean and build and all kinds of other things in the background. But regardless of your gift, here's what I want each of you to hear me say. We need you. We're missing something if you're not using your gift to love each other. The, 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 the church is often re- referred to as a body, and, and I've said this before. What do we call a person who part of their body is not working right? Call them handicapped. The body of Christ is no different. We're handicapped if, if everyone is not using their gift in some way. I'll, I'll be honest with you. If nobody else will, I'm selfish. I I want everything God has given you to bless me. I I want your encouragement. I want your teaching. I want your counseling, your driving, your cleaning. I especially want your cooking. You know, as long as it doesn't include pumpkin or kale. I rebuke you for that. But all the rest. I want to get very practical about this. There are those of you in this room who God has specially gifted to sense when someone is hurting. But but you say to yourself, no, that's none of my business. Nonsense. There are hurting people in this room that need those of you who have been gifted to sense that to barge into their lives with encouragement and, and counseling and care, even if you get singed a little bit. As, as Bob said this morning perfectly, that, that word, you bear up under, you carry someone. There are those of you in this room who, who God teaches something from time to time, and, and, you, and you think, man, other people need to hear this, and then you tell yourself, no, they, they already know that. Nonsense. There are people in this room who need to hear what God has laid on your heart. There are people in this room right now, and and then from time to time, there are people who will be and people who have been hiding from God, running from Him, running from the people who He has put in their lives to to convict and grow and sanctify and, 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 and do all the things that He has them doing in their lives. And there are those of you in this room who God has, has specially gifted to chase them down. You're like spiritual cheetahs. To share your gifts. And then there are those of you in this room who who would want to be more in the background. God has given you a desire to to clean or set up rooms or coordinate calendars and so on. And and you are just as vital to the body of Christ as the speakers are. And, And let's just say, let's just say you give it a shot and it goes completely sideways. You 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 teach, and it is a massive dud. I mean a full-body swing and a whiff. Welcome to the club. I got like at least a dozen sermons you could listen to that'll encourage you. It happens. And, and what if you serve in one way and, and they reject you? Again, 
welcome to the club. We got vests. You can belong. And, and we're, we're right back to verse 8. Where he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers up a multitude of sins. Whatever the case, when it comes to using your spiritual gifts to love each other, here's the biggest thing many of us can do. Stop ignoring the impulses God lays on your heart in regard to your gifts. Stop putting them off. Stop downplaying them. Stop discounting them. Stop talking yourself out of them. Stop dismissing them as unimportant or yourself as incapable. Because if the end is at hand, look at what Peter says about that capability in verse 11. He says in verse 10, share your gifts as good stewards. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks as oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, if the end is at hand, then, then, then loving one another is a great way to glorify God. Because we love one another with speech that is actually God talking through us. And we're serving one another with strength that God actually supplies to us. And so our speech and our, and our serving is actually a glorification of God because it's God doing the work through us as instruments. Listen, this is very important. It goes right back to what Bob said at the beginning about autonomy and sovereignty. Not using the gifts that God has given us to earnestly love one another is robbing God of glory. Not using the gifts that He has endowed us with to love one another is actually robbing God of glory. Because listen, as, as, as incapable or unprepared as we feel, it's way worse than you think. You are so much less incapable and so much less prepared than you can imagine. We're talking about eternity here, guys. We're talking about God, the Father, the Creator of the universe, and we're somehow going to be prepared to explain Him in an understandable way? Of course not. Which means it's always God working through us to do what we can't do ourselves. Which means as our culture continues to darken, as hate and division and hostility and animosity grows in our culture, which the Bible says over and over and over again is going to happen in the end, we have this unique, special opportunity not only to display the gospel of love through our love for each other, but we have this this amplified, intensified opportunity to glorify God by, by letting Him shine through our weakness in our love for each other. As, as the darkness of hate grows on our culture, the light of love just gets that much brighter. If the end is at hand, we need to first 
be aware for the sake of our prayers. Just be aware that the end is at hand. And second, if the end is at hand, then we must love one another earnestly, first by showing hospitality, and second by using the gifts that we have been given. And what I want to do is I want to close this morning with some very practical ways on how to accomplish this. And I'm just going to start at the very top and give you a handful of very practical ways. First, regarding verse 7. Simply look for different ways to remind yourself to be alert and aware. Put a sticky note on your dashboard that says the end is tomorrow. Put a little sign on your, on your bedside table that says this is your last day. Something. Just to keep in the top of your mind that tomorrow is the end. And then here's the cool part. Watch your life be transformed as that truth sinks into your heart. Watch what happens when you pray like today is your last day. Watch what happens when you pray like, like you have one more shot to glorify God and spread the gospel. And see if a whole new world doesn't come into view for you. See if you don't start looking at life in a different way. And see if, see if priorities don't start to fall in line really easy. Second, regarding verse 8, to keep loving one another earnestly. Some of you might need to start by simply stopping. Some of you might need to start by simply stopping. Stop looking at your brothers and sisters as a source of conflict. It's just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not easily insulted, nor does it store up a record of wrongs. Some of you are looking for insults and wrongs to add to your list, so some of us just need to simply start by, by loving others, by, by, by stopping perceiving insult and condemnation. I would say instead, look for ways to snuff out the life of sin and be intentional about it. Seek out people who you have conflict with and love them. Third, regarding verse 9 and 10, regarding our spiritual gifts and hospitality, I would say first, just start. Just start somewhere. Just do something. Just have a conversation or follow a hunch or something. Do one thing. But in addition to, start, to just starting, it's okay to just start small. You don't need to stick your neck out. Just dip your toe in the water. You don't need to start using your spiritual gift by planning a church. Just take someone to lunch. You, you don't need to start a ministry on a hunch. Just have a conversation. Start small, but start somewhere. And third, don't be afraid to expand. Because here's the thing. There will always be an element of uncomfortableness when you use your spiritual gifts. You will never get comfortable using your spiritual gifts. That's not how God rolls. Maybe you counsel one person and you think to yourself, how in the world am I supposed to counsel two people? And then before you know it, you're counseling two people. And then you're like, well, how am I supposed to train other people to counsel? And then you're, all of a sudden you're training other people to counsel. And then you're thinking, how in the world can I run a ministry of counseling at our church? And then before you know it, you're running a ministry of counseling at our church. God does not allow your spiritual gifts to get plateaued. Don't be afraid to expand. Start small, don't be afraid to expand, and don't overlook the mundane, number four. 
Don't overlook the mundane. Don't overlook how your gifts can be used in simple everyday life ways. In other words, you're not going to lunch with someone, you're counseling them. You're not just talking to someone, you're teaching them. You're not just running errands for someone, you're serving them. You're not just curious about something, you're exercising your gift of discernment or counseling or knowledge. Don't overlook how powerfully God can use your gifts in the mundane parts of life. Start small. Don't be afraid to expand. Don't overlook the mundane. But, verse 11, don't be intimidated by the extraordinary. Listen, we, lo- we serve a God who loves to show off in weakness. He loves to show off in weakness. He loves to use people who, who can't talk to proclaim the gospel. Get this. He loves to use people who don't really care about other people to pastor people. He knows, whoever that was. God loves to use the timid to be bold. He loves to use weakness to show His strength, just like like He loves to save people by by a poor, beaten Galilean carpenter hanging on a cross. Listen, the end of all things is at hand. But don't think for a minute that the world is going to get darker without God getting brighter. Our God is going to display Himself the way He always has. He's going to show Himself through love. So if the end is at hand, our loving God is going to magnificently display Himself to this world through our love for each other. What an awesome privilege that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to begin by praising and thanking and glorifying You for the salvation that You have bought us through the blood of our Savior on the cross. The invitation that you have given us to come into your home through his blood. The gift of knowing you at great cost to yourself. Father, we do nothing before we thank you for that. And it is in that truth, Lord, that I pray you would equip and encourage and strengthen us to display that kind of love starting with just each other. A love that is eager and aware and willing to to love and to serve each other even if it means great cost. Father, let that be our light to this community the light of your love shining through us, Father. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.
Amen. Please stand with me and let's sing about how good it is.